0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with HR thought leader and influencer Dr. Dave Olrich. In our discussion, Dave shares his unique approach to HR and people management in organizations, and he describes what he thinks organizational leaders are missing when it comes to their people. We also discuss the importance of growth mindset, organizations as bundles of capabilities, and the why of Dave Ulrich, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: Thanks, John. Great to be
0: here. It is such a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with someone of your stature in the field of HR. Uh, As a scholar practitioner myself in the HR space, I followed you for a long, long time. We've had an opportunity to, um, to be in the same room many times, and we know many of the same people, but we've never really had a chance to talk like this in the past. So it's it's really a
1: great pleasure to have this opportunity. It is such a delight, John. Thanks for inviting me and uh, hosting me. Welcome to my office, and uh, I think welcome to your room. So uh, <laughs> it's always interesting to see this new, uh, it's not normal, but this new a- agenda for how we how we connect and communicate. I am truly honored and uh, delighted to visit with you. Wonderful. And as we begin,
0: um, I, ju- I think... You probably go without much introduction just because of your reputation, um, but I do want to share a brief bio, and then we'll launch into discussion for today. Super. Dave Ulrich is Renzis Likert, Professor of the Ross School of Man of Business, rather, uh, University of Michigan, and partner at the RBL Group, a consulting firm uh, focused on helping organizations and leaders deliver value. He has published over two hundred articles and book chapters in over thirty books. He edited human resource management from 1990 to 1999, served on editorial boards of four journals, and on the board of directors of Herman Miller for 16 years. He has spoken to large audiences in 90 countries, performed workshops for over half of the Fortune 200, coached successful business leaders, and is a distinguished fellow in the National Academy of Human Resources. He is known for continually learning, turning complex ideas into simple solutions, and creating real value to those he works with in three fields. It is such a pleasure to be with you. What a tremendous um, bio and background that you have. Um, Truly an influencer in the HR space, uh, known as the father of modern HR for good reason.
1: Um, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you again. You know, when you read that, it makes me tired. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I realize I've traveled a lot and been Spent much of my life on airplanes and in airports, and now with this coronavirus, as we're taping this, whenever people watch it, uh, it's so weird to be at home uh, and to be literally homebound, and uh, gives us time to pause and reflect. And I know you've had that opportunity as well. So I really look forward to our conversation, John, and uh, learning with and from you. Wonderful, and and same with me. Uh,
0: You you state just at the end of your bio that you. Are a lifelong learner. You you love continual learning, and you know that is just such an important element of life. Like to, the good life is built upon lifelong learning. I believe it's it's one of the things I I am constantly trying to share with with uh, leaders that I meet with. That I'm con- constantly trying to teach to my students. Um, you know, in, in the classroom as the semester ends, that's literally one of the last things that we will take you know, a good amount of time discussing what does it mean to be a lifelong learner? Why is it important? What are they going to take away with them after they leave my course? And I'm, I'm not dumb enough to think that they're going to remember a whole lot of the specific things we discuss in the class, uh, or the things that they read in the class. Um, That's just not the way the human brain works. But hopefully, they are able to hopefully over the course of the semester, they were able to internalize some things, they were able to apply some things, And see the fruits of those applications and hopefully I can uh, inspire a little bit of this desire for lifelong learning because you know once once um, you get on the lifelong learning bandwagon then uh, you're in good shape because you're never gonna stay stagnant you're always going to be progressing and and that's really what life's all about right I uh,
1: boy that's a great comment amen 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 You know, I think that uh, learning how to learn is one of the skills I hope people get. The old model of universities was come from 18 to 24 in that five or six year period, learn a whole bunch of stuff, go to courses, get a degree, and then go forth. I think now what happens is 18 to 24 is really an incubator to teach you how to learn, to ask questions, to be curious, to be a good observer. And the real learning begins when you leave. And, uh, and I know where you teach at Utah Valley University is, I think it's one of the most diverse universities in the world today because you have students of all ages, of all backgrounds, of all areas, and the theory is lifetime learning, which helps us grow. And I hope that's my test, and it would be fun, John, to know your test. As a professor, I give presentations and often in executive programs. I look at my slide deck because I'm, I'm bound by PowerPoint in some unfortunate ways my rule of thumb is I want to have 20 to 25% new material every 18 months. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. In fact, some of my colleagues, they've had the same slide deck for 18 years. Um, Am I constantly stretching myself to seek new stuff? And that's one of the last 10 weeks with the coronavirus pandemic that has really pushed me outside my comfort zone. So what are the issues people are wrestling with in this setting? that forced me to discover new issues. Anyway, that's, for me, uh, a passion, and uh, I hope I continue to be curious and a learner. Uh, Carol Dweck did a book called Growth Mindset yes. that I thought was superb. My, my wife has her PhD in psychology and actually studied with uh, Joel Peterson, who was one of the people that created positive psychology with Marty Seligman, and she loves the growth mindset idea. And so I can't, I, this was not scripted, but I'm sitting here because I've done a lot of webinars. I made her a pillow, <laughs> and uh, that's the pillow that she excellent. now has on her couch. Except when I'm doing webinars, I'm not failing. I'm learning, and I think that's a passion we each share. So thank you. Wonderful. Do you want a copy of the pillow? Maybe I could have one made for you as well. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> that's
0: that's excellent. So I'm curious. Did you did you uh, go through a company to order that, or did you like hand stitch?
1: <laughs> I uh, I clearly hand stitch. <laughs> actually, <laughs> I've not been asked to confess that. I have a very good assistant of thirty years, and uh, <laughs> one call makes it all happen. So <laughs> very, very good. Well, like I said,
0: you're you're a major thought leader and an influencer in the HR space, and I know you have a bit of a unique um, approach to thinking about HR and people management. Uh, maybe we could just start off with giving you the opportunity to share your perspective
1: on that. You bet. When I meet with groups, either business leaders or HR leaders, I often start with a, start with a question because I like to I like to force people's unconscious bias to be clear, and then, if possible, to adapt it. And the question is an easy one, and it's when anyone listening can ask, or you can ask what's the most important thing HR or a business leader or an organization, so what's the most important thing HR business leaders organization can give an employee? You know, it's an interesting test of an assumption and the answers I've actually done a number of webinars where I give them a little poll, a sense of belief, meaning purpose, a sense of becoming better, the learning that we just talked about growth mindset, a sense of belonging to a community, a sense of community, a sense of network relationships, all the above, or none of the above? And I've quit doing the poll because the answers are almost all the same. (laughs) What's the most important thing HR can give an employee? And it's 70, 80 percent, all the above, and then the others are filtered through the first three, and two to three percent, none of the above. My answer is none of the above, which is really counterintuitive. And that's why I want to start with that. I think the most important thing that we in HR or business leaders or your organization can give an employee is an organization that succeeds in the marketplace. And let me say that again, it sounds really trite, but unless your organization succeeds in the marketplace, there is no workplace. And, and, and people say in this, uh, uh, time, Oh, focus on people. It's all about people. If you don't treat your people well, nothing else matters. Well, if you don't win in the marketplace, there's no people. And and the challenge is how do you link those two? Because if you win in the marketplace and abuse your people, there's going to be no organization over time. But if you treat your people well without winning in the marketplace, there's no success either. And so I love to start with my assumption that HR is not about HR. It's about helping the organization succeed in the marketplace now some have said well you're all about profits not at all success in the marketplace means having products services that customers buy that communities respect that investors value and then number two that's number one and i'll well let me stop with well number two what does hr do to make that happen what's our unique contribution to helping an organization succeed in the marketplace there's tons of stuff and you've taught it you've done research on it john You. Your courses, I know, are the highest rated in your university. You're the most popular faculty in the history. <laughs> that was, uh, I don't know that for sure. I, can it. Um, I love simplicity. My dissertation was on taxonomy, it was a statistical assessment. Oh, I have stuff sitting here just because I've been doing a lot of webinars. This is it. This is the dissertation of 40 years ago nice. called Numerical Taxonomy, and it's got statistics on almost every page. A very complicated statistic. So I was a statistician. And uh, just to finish off the humor so that people get more personal, uh, I know you did a dissertation. There was a group when I did mine decades ago called University Microfilms. And they they published them. And I got a check for (laughs) $11.65. So I spent two years full-time writing a dissertation on numerical taxonomy that made me $11. And even then, when I was poor, I couldn't cash the check. I I don't know why I went into that diatribe, but I love to study three things in a simple, simple world. And taxonomy has been my bias for 40 years. How do you make complex things simple? I think HR creates value in the marketplace with talent, leadership, and organization. That's it hr two things is not about hr it's about helping an organization succeed in the marketplace through talent leadership and organization now that second point and i've gone too long is not trivial because often when i go to hr people i say when you go to a business meeting what is it you talk about people uh promotions staffing hiring training all of that is about talent but you also got to build organization that takes the individual ingredients and makes them into an organization. And you've also got to build leadership that brings them together. So in my simple world, two things. HR is not about HR, but helping succeed in the marketplace through talent, leadership, and organization. Yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely. And it's something I try to drill home um, constantly with my students in the classroom, as well as with well-meaning, but perhaps um, not particularly effective Um, HR practitioners out, you know, in my consulting work is that you have to, you always have to be able to show the ROI of what you're doing uh, in the HR space. So if you have this employee engagement program, or you have this employee wellness program, or you're rolling out this new policy, this new uh, procedure, um, you have to be able to assess the impact and you have to be able to show the ROI. And it's, you know, you made the comment, it's not all about profits, or sometimes you get accused of being all about profits. Well, no, it's not all about profits, and and you framed it in terms of the marketplace being successful. But yeah, you have to help the company be more profitable. Otherwise, you're not accomplishing the purpose of the organization. Uh, And if you're not accomplishing the purpose, then it's not going to be sustainable. Um, And so they're not mutually exclusive goals. It's not like you can only focus on people or only focus on profit. Obviously, they're they're overlapping. And and when you have really people-oriented policies, practices, and procedures that can drive creativity and innovation and productivity, which can lead to higher profits and and greater um, um, uh, marketplace uh, attention. And so they're not mutually exclusive, but sometimes HR people, because they come up in the area of thinking, I just want to be about people, they lose that focus, that ability to speak the the language and the terminology of business in a way that other leaders can hear the importance
1: of what they're saying about the people. Wonderful thought. Two, two quick reflections, John, as we think about this. The Business Roundtable in the United States, which is 150 or 80, I don't know how many senior executives, put out a piece in November that's now been lost, and it said, profits and purpose. I think it's wrong. Uh, and I'm going to change one word and it's going to, I mean, everybody just freaks out profits through purpose, profits through people. These are not discrete events. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'll do profits Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday I'll do purpose. Well, that's literally, literally stupid. It's the two that are connected to each other. So I happen to teach at the university of Michigan and, uh, uh, we have executive programs and executives come in for a two week program and we say, what do you want to learn? I wanna learn about changing culture. I wanna learn about leadership development. I wanna learn about executive comp. What I love to do with HR people is find simple messages that help them move forward. And here's my simple two word message, so that, so that. I wanna learn about changing culture, so that, so that our business uh, delivers strategy, strategic HR. And I say, you gotta do a second so that, so that, our business delivers strategies so that our customers will be more likely to buy from us, so that our investors will more likely invest. I want to build leadership development so that our strategy happens, so that we win in the marketplace. When I ask the stupid, simple, so that question, I take HR from an activity focus to an outcome focus, not only inside the company, HR helps make strategy happen but outside the company to customers, investors, and communities. And for me, that opens the horizons for HR. And it also challenges HR people, uh, in a huge way. I'll stop with that. It sounds like you've had great success getting HR people focused in that way and, uh, and making some of that happen.
0: Well, I, I think I, we, we tend to think about this the same way, um, and so it's, it's certainly something in the program at the university. I think all of my colleagues who teach in the program think the same way also. And so we try to create an environment where students are constantly uh, applying what they're learning in real life scenarios, learning by doing, experiential learning, working with real companies on projects, um, and just drilling that home over and over and over again. So I, I do think the students um, tend to get that message a lot. And I hope that I'm successful in sharing that message with business leaders. Uh, I'm not always sure that I am, um, but I, I certainly try to, uh, to hit that point home because I think
1: it's- You know, what, what I have found with both business and HR leaders is 206020 20, normal distribution. 20% are there. In fact, the minute I open my mouth, like you, I mean, we don't need to have a debate. We're there. Move on. 20% are never going to get there. I mean, we could debate and debate and debate and debate. And, and somebody would say, it's not 20, it's 10. I'm not going to fight the numbers. I worry about the percent in the middle. How do we hope well-intended business leaders, well-intended HR professionals move to see, again, for me, HR is not about HR. It's about helping us succeed in the marketplace through talent, leadership, and organization. And how do we help them re-envision their role to, to begin to help make that happen. And again, I, I love to surround myself with the 20%. I bet you love to say, here's the students who really get it, I caused it. And no offense, John, you didn't cause it. <laughs> Neither did I. Uh, give credit to the mothers and fathers of the world. Yep, yep. And, and then there's the 20%. I don't know if you've run into them. I have with students, I've run into them with executives, I've run into them in companies. They're just not gonna get there. Um, I was in one company, and I won't name it for obvious reasons. Uh, they did an employee engagement survey and they hadn't done one for a decade and it was very negative. Mm. And so the head of HR said, I'm not going to share that with the executive team. It makes us look bad. And I said, are you nuts? (laughs) Are you nuts? Your employees already think you look bad. Oh, I can't share that. And I thought, man, sell short. Cause I mean, I mean executives with that mindset and culture are just going to, they're not going to, they're not going to succeed. And, uh, Anyway, so I, uh, I sure appreciate your work at helping students and those you consult with get not just the top 20% who are great, but that middle 60 to 70% who can make progress. Yeah, and it comes back to
0: the growth mindset that you already mentioned. That um, I, I truly believe that I most- a, I got a pillow again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really truly believe that most people- um, they're, they're well-intentioned. They want to do better. They want to do right by their people nice. within their organizations. They want to be effective leaders. They just don't always know how. They don't always have the experience. And so they need, they need help. They need some guidance. And, um, and if, if we can approach people with a growth, both if we can help them see their potential through a growth mindset lens, but also if we approach them through that same lens, we can see the potential within them,
1: then, then great things happen. You know, uh, I know you're a parent, you've shared with me, you have six kids from six to 16 and all of us genuflect with the uh, (laughs) devotion of your good wife. Um, Do you ever find yourself, and I'll ask this because I haven't asked you, I found myself parenting the way I was parented. Mm. I mean, I sometimes look in the mirror and I say, dad, go away, you know. (laughs) Your daughter could do this. And I don't know if your wife's mother is alive. When my son was 15, and I know you have a 16 year old daughter, he stood here, I stood here, and my father stood here. And I looked at my son and I said, Mike, look at me, look at your grandfather, that's your future. And he, ah! <laughs> I don't want that, I don't want that. Uh, but the fact is, most leaders lead the way they were led. Right. And when I see those leaders in that bottom 20%, instead of getting angry, I have great empathy. Tell me what your early leadership experience looked like. And off it was in their, those early formative years, perhaps at home or perhaps in first jobs, the leaders were a little more command and control. They were top down. They, yeah. they didn't empathize. They didn't listen. And maybe if I can get in and tweak that, I don't want to parent the way my parents parented. I want to take some of what they gave me and use it. And then I want to adapt to what my children need today. So I think sometimes we parent the way we were parented. And we need to learn not to always do that. And leaders need to lead, not just the way they were led. And and hopefully over time, that middle sixty to seventy percent improves. That's my passion. That's my hope.
0: Yeah, that's my hope too. What do you think most leaders are missing when it comes to how they lead their people within organizations? We've we've kind of talked around that a little bit, but um, anything specifically that you would point out and recommend? To say those those leaders in that bottom twenty percent, or you know, in
1: the, the bottom bottom portion of that middle sixty percent. It's a great question. I'll I'll share mine if you'll share yours. Uh, sure. Uh, I'll, I, it doesn't matter who goes first. Uh, do you want to go first this time? I've gone first. What do you see missing? And then I'll share a couple of things.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think it simply comes back to a mindset of understanding potential of employees and that they are the source of creativity and innovation within the organization. That they're the source of the productivity. They're going to be the ones that drive, that create the new products and services. They're the ones that will um, drive customer loyalty and retention. And, and so lining up you know, the technical sides of organizations in terms of the, the practices, policies, and procedures is important um but you have to you have to recognize the connection between your people within your team if you're a supervisor manager or executive whatever you have to recognize the, the the role of the people in your team in driving the ultimate outcomes for the business and it's not you as the leader who's creating that outcome it's your people that are creating that outcome hopefully you're um creating an environment to help them be successful help them feel supported and unfortunately, what I, what I find often is um, you have leaders, wh- whether they're well-intentioned or not, ego steps in a little bit too much. They, they feel like they're a little bit too much responsible um, because of their own good work. Uh, and, and not to say that they're not doing good work, but, but you know, if I'm leading a team of 10 people, if I'm an effective leader, sure, I can take some credit for what we produce. But if I'm not acknowledging and creating an environment where those 10 people can do amazing work, then I'm not gonna be successful and the business isn't gonna be successful. And um, a lack of intellectual humility and and, and, uh, heightened ego within leaders and executives is unfortunately too common. And so we constantly have to help people recognize their bias, recognize the, the innate value of their people and how their people are driving the success.
1: By the way, I could just stop with that. That's a terrific answer. Uh, may I put some words on what I heard you say, and then maybe sure. push a little. Um, one of the principles I've discovered, and you said it beautifully, is the value is, in leading others is not what you do it's what others get from what you do the value is defined by the receiver more than the giver if my wife gives me a gift i define the value of that gift if i give her a gift when we were newly wed and i hope nobody ever does this i got my wife tickets to sporting events and she looked at me and said enjoy yourself i mean (laughs) because that's not valuable a few years ago my kids went together actually it was so cool and they made me a book This is a, a, the lighting in here is kind of tough. This is a book of my father and it's a book for children that we can show our grandchildren of grandpa and what he used to do. And, and and they actually made me eight books of, of my life and those that are important, by the way, I get tender with these books because that's me now on the couch, looking like my grandfather (laughs) Uh, values defined by the receiver. So leadership is not, about what you do, it's about what others get from what you do. And I find leaders often working out of their minds, not the minds of those they serve. I'll bet you've had this happen. I don't have it happen, John, very often when I teach. Once in a while when I'm teaching, and not very often, I, this is gonna sound a little nanu-nanu stuff, but I'm seeing how my ideas are being transferred into the mind of those I'm teaching, and it's changing their mental model. And it's going to change their behavior. Now, for me, when that magic happens, I'm, I'm teaching it at, a, at an elevated level. And that's what leadership is. And so we begin to say, when you say, what's one thing? I think when I talk to a leader and say, tell me your agenda. Tell me your leadership agenda. And they talk about, I believe this. I believe this. I believe this. I love to then go back and say, that's your agenda. It's not leadership. Leadership starts by saying, how will, how will you use your strengths to strengthen others? How will you use what you know and do to make others better? And in fact, I've been known to say leadership authenticity is a false positive. If you're authentic, but not making others better, you're not necessarily a good leader. I've even been known to say that there's a leader who's a billionaire. And he says, I'm a billionaire. I'm a great leader. This is clearly hypothetical. Because I've made all this money, and my comment to him would be, "How many millionaires have you created?" Mm. That leadership is not about your authenticity. Leadership is about how you use your gifts to help others create their gifts. And again, I'm going back to this same metaphor. I think, John, that's what you're doing as a parent. You're not trying to impose on your six kids a set of actions. You're trying to help them discover their actions. And and for me, that's one of the issues that I find. I fall into the prey. I start to say, here's what I think you should do, rather than saying, how does what I know help you do what you need to do, rather than just do what I think you should do? So if I were picking one, that would probably be on top of my list. And that's what you just said. You said it beautifully. You said leadership is not about the leader. It's about helping the employees fulfill their potential. That's the same idea. It's leadership is not just what you know and do. It's how what you know and do helps others. Again, in our field, there's been some great work, Build on Your Strengths, by the Gallup group and others. And I would argue that's 40%. The 60% is so that your strengths will give others their strengths. Right. Yeah. Well, and I know you've, in
0: all of your speeches and webinars and, and your writing, I, you you've talked a lot about organizations being bundles of capabilities, and it seems to be connected to what you were just describing in, in terms of the strengths, the capabilities of various leaders and the employees. Um, but maybe, can you speak to that a little bit you more? Uh, uh, organizations get, as yeah. bundles of capabilities as it
1: relates to leaders um, and- I can try. think organizations, yeah. Um, I think we have in our mindset, remember I said, there's three things HR gives, good talent, that's the people. Good capabilities or organization, that's the people and ingredients coming together to build a team, and leadership that integrates those. And, and again, in HR, it's actually a fairly simple idea. Uh, when I'm in a meeting, do we have the right people? Yeah. Do we have the right organization capability or systems that outlast the people? And do leaders make that happen? Let me give an example, and again, using personal life. Um, our son, Mike, Michael, uh, completed his PhD about three years ago. He had at the time four kids from eight down to one, kind of younger than you. And we said to Mike, do you want a graduation gift? And he came back and he said, I want to go to Disney. Okay, we'll go to Disney. <laughs> and then our daughter said, I want to go to Disney. And our other daughter said, I want to go to Disney. So suddenly there's four families, eight adults, and 15 grandkids. There There's 16 and eight grandkids, 16 of us show up at Disney in Florida. This was about two or three years ago. And, and then we say, where do you want to stay? Oh, we got to have the whole Disney experience. So we want to stay on property. We want, to, we want to take the monorail to Disney and get to the thing and do the whole experience. That was all fine until it realized that was a gift from grandma and grandpa, which meant we paid a fortune. And, <laughs> and, uh, and instead of a new car, we went to 16 of us to Disney. And I noticed in the uh, Disney room, the real difference in the room was that the soap had Disney ears carved in it. So <laughs> I said to Mike, I said, you know, I can go buy a couple of bars of soap and I'll carve ears and we can stay off property. And I said, Dad, you don't understand. So long story short, 16 of us, kids from eight to one in three different families going to Disney in Florida where it's hot and humid and I'm sweating and we're walking into the park and a woman comes up all happy and cheery this is the happiest place on earth. And I said, uh, not for me, (laughs) Uh, I'm gonna, we have three kids in diapers, this is gonna be a seven hour trudge through Disney, sweating, and I was grumpy. And uh, so we go through the day, and I'll hyper speed this to not bore your listeners to death, Uh, because we're a big group, we got a separate invitation to go visit Cinderella, and Snow White. So we go into a room, and out walk Cinderella and Snow White. And our eight-year-old, seven-year-old, and eight-year-old granddaughters just stop. Do you have an eight-year-old daughter uh, in your kids? Um, My son just turned nine, and I have a 10-year-old daughter. Okay, your 10-year-old daughter, and I don't know if she's into Disney. These grandkids were into Disney. They stop, and they're mesmerized, and they turn around and they say, Grandpa, she's real. Grandpa, she's beautiful. And then they turn around and say, Grandpa, we love you. Mm. Oh, all of my grumpiness and my angst just, whoop, okay. By the way, I said, ah, crap, we're going to have to do it again. <laughs> and we have. <laughs> uh, so uh, Now, what, what's the theory of that story? And I'm sorry it's a silly story. One, Disney has great people, the Snow White, Cinderella characters, they looked apart, the they dressed apart, the they act apart, the they do great stuff. They have built an incredible culture through their movies, their books, so that our grandkids have this image of this magical kingdom of Snow White and Cinderella and Frozen 2 when it came out. We had to go to to see it. But the impact is on me. I paid the price of a car to take all those kids on a Disney cruise last summer. And you know what, I do it again and again and again. Actually, that's not true. I do it every two or three years when we can afford it. Uh, but, uh, but that look at what Disney has done, and it's not an accident. They have said our job in HR is to create talent, leadership and organization that gets grandkids, your 10 year old daughter, your nine year old son with whichever Disney character he may relate to, to go to their parents or their grandparents and spend an enormous amount of money and claim it was a great experience. Disney's done that with their people and they've created the organizational culture that perpetuates it. What, by the way, if you could do that at Amazon, at Marriott, at Alibaba in China, at Tencent in China, at at any Unilever, if you can create that same logic flow, you identify what you want your customers to be known for or what you wanna be known for by your best customers. Disney, great entertainment, great fun, great experience. We were sitting on the cruise ship last summer, having spent now the equivalent of two cars, not one. And they started doing this animation around the dinner table. And then Snow White comes up to the dinner table and our daughters are now, our granddaughters are 11 and 10. And grandpa, look at her, she loves me. And without the, the social distancing, they hug and, and I look back at that and I go, Disney's got it. They've got a formula. So does Marriott. So does Apple. So does Amazon. So does Unilever. And boy, that's the stuff we want to create in HR that has real value, not only inside, but outside.
0: Too long a story. No, I I love the story. Uh, It's a good illustration of uh, an organization making a customer centric culture. That's also people. It's, it's a employee centric um,
1: no and customer centric at the same time. I, I get so, and I know I'm going to harp on this. I do get frustrated with stuff. There is so much work on culture as the roots of the tree. It's a description. How do we make decisions? How do we manage information? Here's our values, our roots. I love that work. And I think it's out of date. I like to think of culture as the leaves of the tree and the fruits of the tree above the ground. And so we don't want to build a culture and do a great description. We want to create the, and you just said it beautifully, and that's why it triggered me, a right culture. Disney has created the right culture because I, as a customer, am paying a premium and having a great experience and will be repeat business. And so the world of culture to our students and our executives is, don't just create a set of internal values that are the roots. Create the value of values that are the leaves and the branches. Now you're getting me all excited again. Um, uh, and uh, if my son hears this, we're gonna have to go to Disney again. Uh,
0: <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. Uh, something else I thought I would ask you about just because it's it's one of your books that I really enjoyed, um, that you wrote with your wife, The Why of Work. Um, I just love that book. Uh, is, are there any particular like key takeaways that you would like to share from that work uh, with the yeah. listeners, and perhaps? as it relates to our current context today with this global pandemic.
1: You know, that book was a book, um, and again, I think I shared, i professor of business, greed is good. I happen to have married up, and John, you need to say you have too, just so that we have that on record. Of course I have, yes. I married a brilliant, brilliant woman who uh, uh, got an MBA from UC, uh, studied an her undergraduate in speech and drama education did an MBA at UCLA, and then a PhD at the University of Michigan, and she looks at the world through the individual psychological level. I look more at the organizational level. We had an experience where we took three years off to do service for our church in Montreal, and I'll tell a quick anecdote because the stories are helpful, and it drove that book. One day as the leader of a mission for a church, I visited a family in the ghetto. They were from Haiti. Uh, it was a very impoverished family, uh, three or four children, small kitchen, small family, not furnished very well. But when I sat down with that family and left out of the, the, the barrio, there was a warmth, there was a spirit, there was a love, whatever words you can find and just envision what you feel when you've been in that setting. That night, Wendy and I had dinner in Montreal. They have the houses on the hill with the butlers and the servants and the view. We went to dinner in one of those houses. We're dressed up, we walked in, the butler greeted us, the the 10 people hosted a dinner, original art, incredible view, incredible food. And when we walked out, I can't believe I'm feeling the same emotion now, 10, 15 years later. We looked at each other and said, that was empty. Mm, It was empty. And you know, what hit us is, it's not the place where you live that creates this feeling of ambiance, of warmth, of spirit, whatever metaphor you want. It's, it's, it's a feeling. And so we started thinking about that. Wendy from psychology level, and she's written a lot of books around the intersection of psychology and spirituality, me at a business level, who looks at success in the marketplace and winning. And we said, are there some features of work that can create what that family had in their simplistic world? that we can transfer to an organization. Why do you work? And when you know why you work, that why becomes so critical. So we studied that, and in my, my spirit of taxonomy and simplicity, we identified a couple of features. I think there were seven. Here's what you can bring to a workplace that will help people have that uh, emotional gravitas, if you will, and experience. I love that book. And I think we've evolved it. We did that book about 10 years ago. We had seven things, identity, purpose, uh, work setting. I now believe in three, and I've already introduced them. Can we as business leaders help people find belief? Are we meaning makers? Do we as business leaders help people find meaning, belief, and purpose so that customers win? Do we as business leaders help people become better? Do we model and foster growth mindset and agility and learning and do we as business leaders help people belong to a community? Believe, become, and belong so that, I love that. our customers will win mm-hmm. and experience the same thing. We want them to believe, become, and belong with us. So we did Why of Work with seven dimensions that we still think is a good framework, but now we focus on those three. I love that. Uh,
0: that, that framing is wonderful. Um, I think a lot about. Uh, the why behind my work that drives me. My why, I What is it that drives you, John? What drives you? What's your why? Um, you know, it's, it's seeing people thrive. That's, that's my why, um, whether it's students, whether it's leaders, executives. Um, I served a, a mission for my church um, in South Korea. And uh, I learned you know, a lot about the culture and, and the language one of the things I learned uh, really early on um, is a bunch of these proverbs that are based off of um, oh, that's Buddhist, cool. Buddhist or Confucius teachings that have always stuck with me. And one of them that I really love, that it, it really drives my framing for how I try to interact with others, at least, is uh, this proverb Jie," which means bluer than indigo. Uh, it means, you know, that, you know, for whatever success that I might have, um, I might, if, if I find great success, I might be considered indigo, the bluest of blues, but truly, if I'm going to find the greatest success, it's only going to become, it's only going to happen as I help others around me become bluer than indigo or bluer than myself. Ah, cool. Um, and so as a teacher, you know, I, I could approach my students as I'm the expert, I have all the answers, you need to listen to me, pay attention, or as a leader, I could do the same thing with my people. Um, that's not gonna drive great success for them. It's not building them. But if I'm focusing on how to make them better than me, help, help, try to trying to help others find greater levels of success than I've ever experienced, then that's that's, um, that's real success. That's real um, joy. In, indigo. Indigo. That, I that, love that. It's line. bluer than indigo. Yeah. Uh, and bluer. so, um, I think that's my why. That that's the 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 foundational why behind what I try to do. Um, and in our pre discussion before we started recording, uh, started recording the podcast, uh, we were talking about how I actually recently tested um, positive for COVID, and. So, I've been isolated in my bedroom, and my poor wife has been in the rest of the house with the six children all by herself. Um, and she, and I was you know telling her the other day, I'm going a little crazy just being stuck in the bedroom, um, and I have you know a workstation, and I can, and my symptoms aren't severe, and so I can continue working. and you know, really, uh, I don't this isn't a sob story. like I'm fine, and my situation's just fine. But I'm just bored. and uh, and I was telling my wife about this, and and she said, well, John, it's because you don't have any hobbies. Um, you need to have hobbies so that you can keep yourself entertained and keep yourself busy. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, well, that's kind of true. My my life is really my work in my family. And now that my family's been cut off, you know, while I'm in isolation, I just kind of have my work. Now, the difference is I actually see a lot of what I do in my work as really, um enriching and engaging and energizing. So there's a lot of my work that I kind of see as a hobby or I frame it that way in my own mind at least um, because of that why that I have. Um, And so there's a lot of, you know you know how it is, As, as a scholar practitioner, you just have a lot of autonomy and flexibility and you end up taking on all these different projects depending on your interests and what you want to dive into. And that's what I do too. And so I feel like a lot of what I do is just out of, curiosity interest desire to learn desire to grow desire to help other people and um so that's why I don't have a lot of outside hobbies um but but I do find great meaning and purpose through the work that I do
1: I I can't stop without going back uh thank you for your transparency about this pandemic and having tested positive for COVID-19 and uh just as a stop, we don't know each other personally. We haven't interacted a lot socially, but as person to person, may you get well. Thank you. And, uh, may, uh, may you have the blessing of not infecting those you love in a negative way. Uh, that's my fear. If I got sick, I would be just traumatized. My 92 year old mother, I'll be transparent as well, is coming in tomorrow to spend the summer with us from having spent winter in my sisters. And, uh, I'm scared to death. She's 92. If yeah. I did anything that would cause her to be impaired, uh, I would be travesty. It would be a travesty. So for those listening or those watching, I think all of us and whatever divine intervention we have, our thoughts, our prayers, our hopes, our well wishes, and somewhere that psychic spirit may work, that you stay well. So that's more Thank important you. than anything else. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I love the why. I love the why. Uh, When this, and I'm going to be really transparent, when this pandemic happened, I can date it. March 11th, I was teaching a course at a local university, an evening course. I walked out of class. The Jazz had canceled their season. The NBA canceled. And from that day on in the United States, wherever you are, it's different. The world just changed. I just thought, okay, I give up. I'm going to withdraw. And then something spoke to me and said, Dave, step up. Don't walk away. So from that day until May 31st, yesterday, I've done 38 webinars <laughs> I, in 14 different topics. I hope you can appreciate that from yeah. new stuff and 10 interviews. This is now my first in June. So this is my first of a new season. <laughs> uh, and what a great way to start. I, I have to start high and keep going. And I think that's my why. I hope that like you, I can be a voice to a set of people where ideas are more powerful, words are more powerful than swords. It's a great quote. Yeah. Uh, and, and if we can give words as scholar practitioners that frame ideas, that shape behavior, that determine actions, boy, is that a place that we make a difference. And for me, that's why learning matters where we started, because the ideas can't be stale. They have to be fresh. Uh, that's why outcomes matter. It's not my ideas. It's will my ideas have impact? And I sense that with you. Um, and I hope that as you heal physically from this, that the emotional and social and spiritual healing is even more powerful, uh, as we create ideas that have impact. Wonderful. And
0: I, I think that's a great place for us to stop. Um, ideas with impact, amen to that. Uh, We want to drive uh, meaningful change within organizations to to drive um, great success in the marketplace and great value for the consumers. Uh, And we can do that largely through our people. Um, And that's what HR should be all about. And uh, it has been a tremendous pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, Thank you so much for for being so generous with your time and uh do you want to give the last word anything else you want to say yeah or? you know
1: it's an interesting question now, i'll end where i've started and in the last few months i love to ask people what was the best year or two years of your life and here's what i often get when i was 16 and in high school i was you know star, star in the play and in drama when i was in college it was such a great year if i can remember it no offense if as not everybody can remember college Uh, The first year I was married. Somebody told me recently, the first year after I was married. (laughs) All of those are clever answers. I think they're wrong. I hope that the best year of your life, as those listening, is the next 12 months. I hope the best is yet ahead. And, And that's the mindset of learning, of growth, of aspiration. The best year of my life has not yet occurred. It's the next year. And when we get that into our head, you talked earlier about the spirit of learning that you want your students to have, that when they leave your course, it's not facts and figures and tests. It's the ability to create the next year as the best year of your life. That would be my final hope for not just HR professionals, for me, who struggles with that at times, but for all of us. Amen. Uh,
0: Wonderful. Um, Again, it's been a great pleasure being with you. Thank you so much. And I hope you stay healthy and safe and enjoy your week. Thank you.